This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Before we begin the show, I just want to first thank you all for tuning in, for taking time to listen. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us some comments there if you'd like. Tell your friends and family about us. And stop by our website, www.brainpodcast.com. We post additional content related to the scientists featured on the show, so definitely check it out. All right, let's do this. In today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Maria Geffen, a neuroscientist at the University of Pennsylvania. The major focus of Dr. Geffen's lab is to understand auditory processing to answer the question, how do we hear in real-world environments? While we can effortlessly listen to a symphony and be able to appreciate the sound, the ways in which our brain is able to transform sound waves into the actual perception of sound, that is still very mysterious. A good example of a challenging question in the field is something known as the cocktail party problem. Here's the scenario. You're at a bar. It's a particularly crowded night, so there's a lot of noise. Dozens of conversations are being had. Glasses are clinking, chairs moving, and a jukebox is blasting some music. But you're there to catch up with a friend. So you turn to them, and you just start talking. And without much effort, you're able to pick out your friend's voice from the really noisy environment. So, how is the brain able to perform this task? Dr. Geffen approaches the question of auditory processing from many different angles, combining biological and computational methods. On one hand, she studies the sounds themselves. What makes up the acoustical properties of naturalistic sounds? On the other, she studies the brain circuits that process this information. During the interview, we talked about how our emotions can affect our auditory perception and about her appreciation of the interaction between the arts and sciences. Enjoy. So my name is Maria Geffen. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I work in the Department of Otorhinolaryngology and of Neuroscience. And my lab studies auditory processing. So the big question that we're trying to um, understand is how we hear in real-world environments. And this is really a question that has uh, very many different parts to it. So on the one hand, we want to understand the sort of the space of the soundscapes uh, in the natural world, just to put some constraints on what is it that our auditory system has to process, has to deal with. So, like, what are the what are the components of the sound waves themselves that? Uh, humans or other animals pick up on? That's right, yeah. So what is it that makes um, environmental sounds sound the way they do? For example, one set of sounds we worked on are water sounds. 
And so it turns out that you can generate a random sound and it will sound like water if you tune one specific parameter. And we actually identified that parameter mathematically and that we could make an artificial sound and we could sort of tune uh, whether or not it sounds more or less like water or it sounds like metallic noise oh. or static noise. It would without that what what component could you talk about what that is that you found that yeah makes so it sound like water? the uh, so the parameter actually controls something that has it's the same parameter that as has been found to be important for natural uh, visual scenes uh, which is uh, scale invariance so scale invariance is the property of um, having the same characteristics at different scales and in the case of water sounds, the scale invariance emerges naturally based on the physical properties of water, so that the water sound is produced by all the different droplets uh, that come into contact uh, with the surface when the water falls, and those droplets have different size, and due to their size, they emit different frequencies, and then the uh, time course of the decay of those frequencies uh, contributes to the scale invariance in their pers uh, in their statistics. So that's of course a very specific example. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, more broader uh, questions is we're trying to relate uh, this analysis to aspects of uh, uh, of speech and uh, to different statistical properties of, of acoustical properties of speech. Uh, now this is this is at the level of the input, right? in the lab, level of the input to the auditory system. Uh, but we're interested in understanding the circuitry that underlies our perception. And we concentrate on uh, the auditory cortex because that's the brain area where we think the very interesting transformation happens, where the brain goes from encoding the physical features of the acoustic waveform to creating a, uh, an object-based representation of the auditory scene. Uh, could you talk about what you mean by that, an object-based scene? So do you mean if, I'm, if I see a person playing a guitar and that's made up of lots of frequencies, then I bind those together into like, I'm listening to a guitar? Is that what you're Yeah, what that's you a very good example. So there is a, this notion of sound object, which is a little bit tricky to... Uh, defined, but for example, a guitar or let's say a musical instrument. So if you listen to um, an orchestra, uh, the sound that's produced by different instruments overlapped, overlap spectrally. However, you can pull apart within the different frequency channels the sound that belong to different uh, instruments based on uh, whether they're simultaneously modulated in time. And that happens somewhere within the auditory pathway, uh, such that eventually the brain is not encoding all the different frequencies modulation separately, but it's really encoding them as part of that, that particular instrument or the, mu the melody that's produced by that particular instrument. And that's also relevant to uh, human communication and uh, to speech. So when we hear overlapping speakers, eventually there is a representation of 
one speaker saying that and the other speaker saying uh, the other thing. And that, that gets to being able to, in a, in a large, you know, like the cocktail party example that's, that's used frequently, being able to pull apart individual voices when there's kind of right. a, a huge amount of sound information kind of going about. Yeah, so the cocktail party uh, problem is a very interesting question that's not hasn't really been uh, solved, which mm -hmm. is how is it that we can pull apart the sounds of uh, the sound of the speaker that we're interested in from a whole bunch of uh, speakers in the background. The reason why it's important to solve that problem is because that this ability that we can perform almost effortlessly is impaired in uh, in people with hearing deficits, in patients with cochlear implants, and in uh, people with hearing aids. It becomes very difficult in hearing, hearing in noisy environments. Uh, and so finding the, identifying the neuronal mechanisms that contribute uh, to that particular part of processing uh, hopefully will lead to an improvement in therapies and improvement in design of hearing aids uh, that will ultimately improve the ability of these patients to hear in noisy environments. Is the thought that where that computation, I guess, takes place, the ability to, to take simple, say, frequencies and then bind them to objects and mm -hmm. then discriminate can you talk about the like sort of the like where I guess you you kind of already said that it may be in the auditory cortex where you believe that this happens, but why do you think there and what about the like is the very basic or the very first steps in that uh, hearing process? Is it known that those do not perform that task? Yeah, so it happens that there are many stages to auditory processing, and it's actually very hard to say where specific processing. Uh, takes place because it can be repeated throughout different brain areas and there is also it's not a simple feed forward uh, process there is also feedback between different areas and so one of the things that we try to do is we try to disentangle what kind of processing happens within the auditory cortex and how does that contribute to subcortical processing now, the auditory cortex is not just one single uniform area. There are different subregions, uh, such as the uh, primary auditory cortex, secondary, uh, and different several non-primary areas. And we also try to understand how the signal is transformed between those areas. What kind of methods do you use to answer these questions? So we work uh, in the rodent uh, system, so we work with mice and rats, and we perform uh, recordings from large populations of neurons uh, simultaneously in the awake animals who are often engaged in a specific behavioral task. And we also use optogenetic techniques to manipulate the activity level of specific uh, neuronal subtypes. Can you talk about how you or how your lab is kind of, I guess, like adding pieces to the puzzle of how, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. how we're really understanding what uh, computations the auditory cortex right, is doing? Right. Yeah. So we have, um, we have several lines of research. And uh, in one line of research, we try to understand the basis for processing of animal vocalizations. 
This is important because um, rats and mice communicate using ultrasonic vocalizations, which you and I can't even hear. And that's partially why they're using this, or it's thought that they developed these vocalizations, is because it, they're occupying a specific acoustic niche and uh, that is not occupied by other environmental sounds or by other animal vocalizations. And uh, we wanted to understand, do they, their brains exhibit specialization for these vocalizations? And are they specialized for particular statistical parameters of these vocalizations? So just like uh, speech has particular rhythms, uh, so do um, rat and mouse vocalizations. And we found that indeed in the rat auditory cortex, first of all, many neurons exhibit selective responses for the ultrasonic vocalizations. But secondly, they're tuned to the particular statistical temporal parameters of these vocalizations. So in a way, the vocalizations fall just in the sweet spot of uh, the temporal dynamics uh, of neurons in the auditory cortex. So um, that was to us a very satisfying discovery because it showed that maybe there is something, there is either something about the vocalizations or about the rodent brains where there is a match between the statistics of the vocalizations and the way they are, uh, they brain processes and encodes those vocalizations. I guess I could imagine a sort of refinement over time, you know, of uh, sort of an evolutionary, evolutionary perspective yeah, of right. both of those kind so of going. So it would be interesting yeah. to look at that. That's It's very difficult to look at something like that yeah. um, <laughs> because we just don't have you know, um, models from, models. Yeah. <laughs> from rat. We, right. We can't take exactly. a frozen How mouse. How <laughs> that hasn't really looked. People haven't really looked. Uh, although there are people who study sound production and they could eventually, the modeling will become good enough that you could, you would be able to predict the kind of vocalization just on the structure of the vocal apparatus. But oh, but that's being that's, done right now. If you could yeah, see, say, a fossil yeah, or some sort yeah, of, a, you yeah. could imagine what the sounds would be. Yeah, exactly. I've so always wanted to know what really like cool. dinosaurs or exactly. other exactly. Yeah, yeah. So animals. to some extent, <laughs> um, you you should be able to reproduce at least the range of vocalizations that you could, uh, you would be able to make uh, using particular vocal uh, apparatus. What what is it about in the rodent? A frequency band that makes it specialized is, is there very few mammals that do that or is it that in the environments that they kind of live in naturally there's not much sound in that frequency range yeah so in general environmental sounds uh drop off in intensity as uh inversely with the frequency so the higher in frequency you go the less loud the background noise is so that's one simple uh explanation for why you would select um, to have vocalizations in the ultrasonic range. So another line of research in my lab is that we look at the interplay between emotions and auditory perception. And we recently showed that uh, emotional learning can change the way uh, animals can, uh, perceive sounds and such that it can either improve or uh, impair the ability of the animal to tell apart tones of different frequencies. What gave you inspiration to go down 
uh, the connection between the emotional component uh, of how your, I guess, emotional state is and how you perceive a sound. So this was work that was done by um, my postdoc, Mark Eisenberg, uh, who's Israeli. And he went through the Israeli army. And so he was very interested in why it was that some of uh, his uh, fellow uh, veterans developed post-traumatic stress disorder and others didn't. So post-traumatic stress disorder, a model for that is um, auditory fear conditioning, where uh, we train the, or condition the animal to associate an aversive stimulus with a previously neutral stimulus, for example, a tone, such that uh, 24 hours later, the animal develops freezing to, uh, to the tone. Uh, and it turns out that some of the animals freeze not just to the conditioned tone, but also to all other tones. So in the way they generalize their fear, two tones of different frequencies, while other animals do not. And we found that that difference is also translates in their ability to discriminate between different tones of different frequencies. So the emotional learning is very tightly intertwined with uh, frequency discrimination acuity. And so there's a, and it's a training or how the learning occurred in the first place that then exactly sets right. That up. So there is a common mechanism that controls both this level of specialization of learning and uh, acuity and frequency discrimination. Is there a component too of the emotional state of the animal when it's um, when you're testing it that affects it as well? Uh, so that's something that we have to control for. And in fact, we have some, done some controls to show that that does not affect the uh, frequency discrimination. Uh, when you say frequency discrimination, this is telling the difference between similar sounding right. tones. Right, tones in an emotionally neutral context. Yeah. yeah. So this is, if I'm getting this right too, the, the um, animals have an emotional reaction right. to um, one tone but not the other right. are much better at discriminating than the frequencies underneath yeah. that, whereas an animal that is generalizing, which is, I guess, sort of right, a model of a PT, uh, someone that is susceptible right, to PTSD. Exactly. Right. And, interesting, yeah. Outside of the um, auditory components, what other areas are being like recruited? And do you believe that this is very critical then information on then how the animal is reacting to the emotion? Yeah, so we hope that the, um, of course, the uh, neuronal circuits um, that are involved in auditory fear conditioning overlap, but they're just a subset of the of the circuits that are involved in uh, emotional responses in general. And so we're really sampling a very specific subset of the circuits that uh, play into the more general question of how emotion regulates our perception. So we know that emotion regulates our, you know, controls our sensory perception. For example, when we um, watch movies and there is a background music and that, you know, can make us very scared or very, you know, happy and the same image will be perceived very differently. And if we watch the movie with the sound turned off, we'll have very different uh, perception of what happens. So it's not just specific to the auditory modality. It can really translate across different modalities. Um, so we hope that this is a finding that's going to be more um, 
that's going to be relevant not just for the auditory system but also for other kinds of perception um one thing i was i was thinking about is the information that you were uh that you've talked about is about how an animal's uh a, a sort of emotional reactivity is affected by the uh, sort of conditioning and uh, like a learning experience but what about are there any things that you know about how uh how just naturally say a particular kind of sound is pleasant and certain things are unpleasant is that it's hard to measure that in uh, animals because yeah. we can't exactly ask them whether they don't they don't about. respond to music like yeah. a certain Yeah I mean we can ask them whether they're bored <laughs> or they get interested yeah. by transition. I can't, I can't, I can't so, see that in their real life. A mouse doesn't exactly. care about music but that much. But presumably <laughs> they're, you know, like something like vocalization. During vocalization, during behaviors where the rats are producing vocalizations, or where mice produce vocal, ultrasonic vocalizations, their serotonin levels are actually up or down regulated. And we, of course, know that serotonin is has something to do with our emotional state. Uh, so uh, we're actually exploring the function of serotonin in uh, sensory processing. And so that's, you know, a whole other pathway uh, where uh, a neuromodulator might be involved in controlling sensory perception. And uh, could you finally tell us about the research that your group has been looking into the distinct subsets of neurons and how particular certain subsets of these neurons are uh, are playing a large role in this processing. Yeah. So one of the uh, special, so we, we talked in the beginning about how the auditory cortex might exhibit some specialized kind of processing or specialized computation. And one thing that's very uh, strong uh, feature of auditory cortex is that all the neuronal responses are very strongly context specific. Uh, so for example, the responses to a very simple stimulus such as a pure tone are very different depending on whether that stimulus is presented frequently or rarely, such that the responses of neurons to the rare stimuli are much stronger than the responses to the frequent stimuli. We don't have direct evidence, but we think that's important for perception because it's a very good idea to tune out responses to sounds that uh, occur very commonly uh, because overall, in the context of limited resources, that increases our capacity to detect uh, rare and potentially dangerous sounds. And uh, so this context, uh, and that's what we mean by context specificity of cortical responses. And uh, so what we started looking at is the function of different type of inhibitory interneurons in uh, this process. And uh, so these are um, uh, unpublished findings. And uh, so, but we do have some preliminary results showing that different types of interneurons play an important role in this processing. Would you be able to walk us through uh, what got you interested in what you study now? Uh, could you tell us maybe some of the first stages in your scientific career, what, which drove yeah, you to want to so, study science? Yeah, so I often get the question is, why did you study so many different sensory modalities. And uh, so I've always been, I feel like throughout my research, 
I have always been trying to answer the same question, which is how populations of neurons encode uh, encode information about uh, the uh, outside world uh, in the context of more or less real life uh, perception. There is an underlying theme to uh, to uh, my uh, to the different types of research that um, I did throughout my career, and that's trying to understand how the brain encodes information about the environment in uh, the context of sort of real life processing, and to um, understand that in the context of some sort of computational or biophysical uh, model. And is that your background initially? or? Yeah, so my background is in uh, biophysics. And the first study that I did was actually uh, a very interesting um, contribution uh, to systems neuroscience, where as an undergrad, uh, I looked at um, the function of uh, the rat's uh, whiskers. So rats use whiskers to, uh, for all kinds of purposes. Uh, it's sort of, in my opinion, their most important uh, sensory organ. And they whisk uh, past different surfaces to orient themselves or to navigate. And one of the striking features of the whiskers, uh, which are called vibrissae, is that they're different length and they different length from uh, one to eight centimeters. So they're very uh, large differences in their length. And uh, with my un undergraduate advisor, um, John Hopfield, uh, who's a physicist, uh, we started looking at the mechanical properties of the whiskers. And we noticed that experimenters usually trim the whiskers to the same length, which is one centimeter prior to their experiments. But in fact, if you look at the mechanical properties of the whiskers, they have very different uh, function depending on the length of the whiskers, such that uh, they have very different resonance frequency characteristics. So the same whisker, when it's swept at the same speed uh, against a surface that has different textures, will come in resonance with different uh, spatial uh, components of that texture. And we measured the resonance properties of the whiskers, and then it was turned in collaboration with Christopher Moore at MIT into vibrissa resonance theory. And it became a very popular theory in this amount of sensory research. And in fact, a year after the publication of our paper, there was a whole session at Society for Neuroscience meeting that was devoted to the micromotions of vibrissae and uh, texture encoding in the somatic sensory system. Uh, and this is your undergraduate? Yeah, like, wow, off yeah. to a great so start. It was a really interesting Did study. they invite you to, uh, <laughs> to that talk to uh, sort of be like, you're welcome? Or... <laughs> it was, yeah. So in fact, actually, so then my research career took me to different sensory modalities. But in fact, 
a few years later, I was invited to come back and chair a session on vibrissive processing. <laughs> it was very interesting. Wait, but you had uh, been out of that maybe field yeah, for a while? Yeah, for a few years. But they're like, yeah. well, she was the one who <laughs> yeah, yeah. did these first yeah. things. Well, I mean, a lot of it is due to Chris Moore and John Hopfield yeah. and Mark Anderman. Um, but yeah. Was that your so, first kind of scientific experience? Yeah, that was my first scientific experience. And so from there, I kind of emerged with this very um, firm idea that it's very important to sort of think about the basic principles of the biophysics of sensory processing and that that can yield very important insights. And to me, also, the way you described it is to also really think about the 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 methods and how and you know if you are tweaking the system like you said by you know shaving down the the whiskers exactly, which may right. have been which may have been it would just you know par for the course like that was the way it was done and it seemed yeah, uh, yeah. it's so that you could sample from more neurons there yeah. to different whiskers but you standardize the conditions for the experiments so yeah. I think it's very neat and what's also interesting is that. Now I'm studying the auditory system, where this is something that the hair cells do. So the hair cells function to transform the sound waveform into frequency delimited channels. These are the inner ear, inner ear hair cells, right? right? That are they actually vibrate or at least like respond to exactly, frequencies of sound. Right. Yeah. And they do a very similar kind of idea. Well, so yeah. the idea with the whiskers was that maybe they do something similar to what the cochlear is doing mm. in uh, transforming a uniform, uh, this signal, a complex, temporally complex signal into spectrally del frequency delimited channels. Mm. Um, so there is kind of an interplay between different sensory modalities. Interesting. Yeah. Um, after your undergraduate, where did you go next? By the way, where where was that again, too? Uh, that was at Princeton. At Princeton, yeah. okay. And then where was your next step? And so yeah. my graduate school was at Harvard. I was in the biophysics program. And I joined uh, Marcus Meister's laboratory, uh, which um, studied processing in uh, of visual signals in the retina. And what attracted me to that was that uh, back then, which was... Not too long ago, but it's a huge time in terms of neuroscience because this was the pre-optogenetics era. Uh, we, the retina allowed us to sample the activity of populations of neurons in uh, essentially um, in something that was part of the brain uh, and while controlling perfectly the sensory stimulus. And so it was very interesting because uh, from the technical standpoint, we could record the activity of populations of neurons for many hours uh, while uh, projecting any sort of movies that we wanted onto the photoreceptors. Um, the preparation for this, if I, is, is this where the retina is almost like kind of flattened out exactly. and then put so onto an the, array? Yeah, so the retina is isolated and put onto an electrode array and uh, uh, the stimulus is projected onto the photoreceptors. Mm -hmm. So in fact, it mimics what the retina is doing in the eye, yeah. uh, only of course we would never be able to record for, you know, uh, a whole day uh, from the, from the uh, ganglion cells in the eye. 
and what how was that how was your graduate uh experience like and yeah um, so again so again we uh i stumbled on a really interesting discovery very early on in fact my rotation project turned into my uh my graduate thesis and we found that uh so there is this textbook notion that different uh, the output neurons of the retina which are the ganglion cells uh, respond to light transitions to either on type transition where light changes light switches on or to off type transitions and what we found is depending on the context and that's where this context dependence comes in that i'm really interested in addition uh, the processing the receptive fields can actually switch on the time scales of hundreds of milliseconds from off to on and then back to on. Uh, and that's driven by saccadic-like movements in the periphery. So this was an interesting question because we make saccades uh, a few times per second. And when we make saccades, um, the whole image shifts on the retina, the whole image of what we see. However, we don't perceive it as such. So our brain somehow compensates for this movement uh, of the image of the world on our retina. And so we wanted to see where the mechanism for that. And what is, how did you, what the, the context was the amount of maybe saccades in the background or what was the... Well, just the yeah. presence of the saccade. So we measured the receptive field just after the saccade and before the saccade and you know, a few hundreds of milliseconds after. And um, so this kind of pointed to this more general question that uh, it's uh, interesting uh, to try to uh, define what a neuron, uh, what is the receptive field of a neuron. And it's very much depends on which mode of operation that cell you're, you're looking at. So the same cell, depending on whether it's just after the saccade or just before the saccade, is signaling very different information oh, so about uh, the stimulus. Is it correct to say that before that, the, the neuron's receptive field is thought to be just one or the other, but, exactly, couldn't, but right. didn't have the com capacity to, to change, change dynamically? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that's, yeah. it was, again, could you talk then, you say that the concept of context and That's right. Yeah. So learning. this kind of um, feeds into this whole idea that the brain is very dynamic and the sensory processing really depends not just on whatever stimulus you're looking at right now, but on everything that's happening around you and what has happened before. And uh, that's the kinds of questions that we're now trying to answer at the level of the, uh, of the auditory cortex. Uh, so to try to understand either how emotional processing shapes our perceptions, shapes uh, co encoding of sounds in the auditory cortex, or on how different context history of the presentation of tones modulates the neuronal responses. Could you tell us, you since you study auditory processing, how has that changed the way you think about music and speaking and I guess other other forms of your yeah. maybe auditory experience in, in the world? Yeah, yeah. so 
I, I'm not a very musical person, so I have very bad um, pitch and rhythm, sense of rhythm, and so maybe why, the reason why I'm so interested in auditory processing is to compensate for those deficiencies. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I become much more acutely aware of the difficulties that people experience so people with hearing deficits or people with uh, with hearing aids or just older people in general experience in hearing in uh, noisy acoustic um, environments. Uh, well, first of all, they always tell me about it. <laughs> so, but also, I just people love to hear realize. like, "Thank you for studying what I, you know, if I if I had a hearing problem, right? It's like, please yes, help me." <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, but. But also, you just kind of become very grateful for this ability that we have to do that. And you realize how difficult life is when you cannot do that. And that's such an important problem because so many people are affected by it. Do you have any other, um, uh, I guess at the end of the day when uh, you're not doing science, do you have any other hobbies or other interests that you uh, spend time with? Yeah, well, my hobby right now is, uh, it's not really a hobby, but that's my main thing in life, is raising my children. (laughs) So I have three children, and so that's been a daily source of joy and uh, also struggle for me, uh, is to um, raise a family while also um, running a lab. How do you balance in the lifestyle of a of a busy neuroscientist with also uh, you know raising a family? Yeah, so I mean it's it, it's not easy. So I kind yeah. of have to be on the whole day, and it's uh, uh, in the laboratory. We do experiments that take a very long time, and uh, very often I have to be um, responsive to my students. Uh, you know, late. Uh, late at night (laughs) and I'm uh, you know I just work a lot and I try to spend as much time with my uh, kids as I can Uh, one thing that has really helped me is uh, become more involved to bring sort of neuroscience to my children and that becomes of course easier as they grow older Uh, but uh, one thing that I did last year was uh, organized a series of workshops in my son's elementary school uh, where we showed different aspects of neuroscience to uh, first graders. They loved it, the students loved it, and for me it was a really enjoyable experience. Uh, we also did a presentation in the Philadelphia Science Festival, so that was my graduate student who set up a booth on auditory illusions, and my son was one of the volunteers. Oh, cool. uh, helping organize that um i think that in general um uh, some some aspects of neuroscience are just so prevalent in our everyday experiences that um sometimes i can think about them while while doing other things (laughs) yeah but some aspects just require a lot of hours of work or in front of a computer with yeah 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 (laughs) So, um, so yeah, so that's, uh, so, but that's, that's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And do you have, um, do you have any other thing that you, um, are passionate about? Um, lately, uh, it has become more and more important to me. Uh, I don't know how to say it, but I'm very frustrated 
with uh, this um, lack of trust in science in many Americans, uh, which I'm trying, I'm having difficulty squaring that with sort of our progress as a nation and the accomplishments that we have achieved both in basic science and in biomedical research. And uh, it's very hard for me to understand how people who rely on modern medicine uh, rely on all sorts of modern comforts that would not be possible with science are the same people who argue for a reduction in funding for science, uh, which is what got us there in the first place. And so, um, as we know, the NIH budget has shrunk in the last 10 years by almost 50%, depending on how you adjust for inflation. And it's just having a very detrimental effects on uh, science, both in terms of how much science we can do, what kinds of science people choose to perform, uh, the amount of risk that people are willing to take. And also it's becoming more difficult to train, to train uh, students and to remain positive on the impact of the science finding on their careers. And of course in Texas that's a very big question, right? Because there is such a range in sort of interest and opinion in the importance of science and the role of science. Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the most important issues in our uh, which I would never think would even be an issue when I was a graduate student. Uh, I, I thought that as society evolved, science education would improve, but in fact, it seems that it's getting worse. And How much would you agree that modern scientists have somewhat of a, an ob a social obligation to, uh, to promote scientific thought and rationale? And yeah, so modern scientists had, uh, are, pro I feel like, all the scientists that I know are doing so much to promote it, but it's really politicians who have to come around and see that as an important issue. And uh, also educators, so politicians who are in control of education at the level of primary school, where you know the first exposure to science takes place. Yeah. If we lose people there, it's very hard to get gain them back later on. And um, I've always been, um, you know, very, I'm very interested also in art and music. And um, I think that one of the ways um, that I can see some, some ways of doing that is through some interaction of between art and science. The population that that would target is not so huge. Yeah. And largely, I think artists like science. Yeah. Or... <laughs> Do you, um, uh, could you talk actually just a little bit more about that? Because I also think that's uh, very important. I, I think from both sides, both artists, I think, um, learn a lot about. Uh, what they do by understanding this, like the sort of mechanisms yeah. underlying it, and mm -hmm. that scientists can learn a lot about uh, what they study um, through sort of the artistic method, or at least being inspired by that. Um, yeah. And what what do you have a background in that, or is it just something, sort of a uh, personal um, at attachment to? Yeah, I mean, I have a little bit of a background in that I did a minor in visual arts mm -hmm. as an undergraduate, but I haven't really done arts, uh, art uh, since then, seriously. But 
I've always thought of uh, it would be interesting to um, do a collaboration in terms of, um, for example, an experimentation with sound that would be driven by uh, modern day neuroscience findings. So there is, of course, a lot of that that is being done in, uh, in music uh, where uh, our, our musicians experiment with different patterns uh, of um, perceptual responses to different patterns of sounds. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, in a way, sound music is such an abstract sense uh, where um, it's all, you, you're really just enjoying the sounds that have nothing to do with reality, right? It's not like movies or uh, some forms of visual art. And so um, it, it seems to me like there, uh, and I know that some, some neuroscientists are collaborating with artists uh, to do that. So but do you see yourself that would be something you would like to at some yeah, point with all the information you yeah, all the information yeah. you know about um, yeah. how the brain basically perceives exactly, frequencies right if that could be integrated somehow yeah into, maybe if you could you could design some sort of uh, like a soundscape that would like play into the yeah, audit, kind of the exactly. auditory tricks or that you said change the different soundscapes yeah mm -hmm. and I've seen some installations like that yeah. but they weren't as um, scientifically driven you yeah. know so to get back to just even yeah. like way back in in a, what we just talked about water sounds is like yeah. kind of one of the most commonly like soothing right exactly sounds. right i wonder if yeah <laughs> so i could make a water sound app <laughs> which exists, they sell lots of cds fact, yeah yeah you can download them because yeah. they're very useful for for falling asleep yeah, yeah. They, they both they they calm down the sort of the, i don't know there yeah. is a sort of very uh i don't know if it's a bait if it's like oh water is around that's a something yeah. that's po po usually positive in human experience right so. right exactly yeah. yeah so um yeah unless they make you want to go to the bathroom yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that gets that's positive with the, with the outcome eventually but yeah all right well maria thank you so much for talking to us yeah here. thanks so much Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.